Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Back to The Baldface Truth with John Kanzano on 750 The Game. Look, I know there's a lot of angst in the Pac-12 footprint about what is happening with the Pac-12 conference. Where will your teams be playing? Uh, The Pac-12 has been through some of this before over the years. The Pac-12 has undergone different, uh, uh, different, uh, basically, there have been a number of teams that have come into the conference. It started as the Pac-8 conference. But if you really look at the history of the Pac-12 conference, it was founded in downtown Portland uh, all those years ago. I think it was 1915. I don't know anybody was there. But in 1915, there was a meeting at the uh, Imperial Hotel in downtown Portland. And this thing, uh, you know, found some life. Uh, I have talked about sort of the birth of the Pac-12 conference. But we want to go to a historian when we talk about the original, uh, you know, Pac-12 conference. And I want to go to Mark Shipper, who runs a website called fifthdowncollegefootball.com, and he's joining us now. Mark, let's talk some history, man. I've been reading your posts, and there's yes, just sir. a ton of history here. Let's go back. Like, what is it that makes the history of the Pac-12 interesting to you? Well, the Pac-12 is an interesting league because it's always kind of had one foot in and one foot out of major college football, which we're seeing today. So it's always been known as an academically prestigious league. It's always been known as kind of a rule-following league. And there's always been a very interesting dynamic between its schools because there's an unusual mix between big urban population centers and rural universities. And over the years, that's caused conflict. I would argue that what's going on today is in part related to the situation of each of the universities. Pacific Coast Conference founded in 1915, downtown Portland, Imperial Hotel, doesn't exist anymore. I got this neighbor who's an older guy, he's a retiree, and he says, oh yeah, I remember the hotel. I remember when it was then. I said, huh. you know, this is this is a story that has a real Portland flavor to it and really is of the Pacific Northwest, but when you look at sort of the original schools, you had Idaho in there, you had Montana in there, USC was in there, UCLA was in there, original members, um, and uh, certainly Washington, Washington State, Oregon State, and Oregon. But, you know, this is a a conference that I think has undergone some changes over the years, Mark. Um, You know, how nervous should people be right now? I think everyone's nervous right now. I think individual schools and leagues are nervous. I think fans are nervous uh, because they're seeing the game that they love being broken up in kind of violent ways and reorganized. So the Pac-12 should be nervous, but I like the guy they have in charge, George Klyavkov. I think 
had he not been brought in after the torpedoes had kind of hit the hull, I think he could have captained this ship to safer waters. But I think he's a great guy to have in charge now. If if the Pac-12 can keep itself together and get through the next sort of period before college football finishes its reorganization, I think they'll be okay. But there's going to be a fight, and I think the, the, the Big 12, Pac-12, and then potentially this alliance redux with the ACC from the Pacific Coast to the Atlantic Coast, um, whatever happens there is going gonna, is gonna to determine what goes on afterwards. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I know that, uh, you know, there's a saying, you know, you'd rather have uh, loved and lost than never loved at all. But, you know, they got burned by the Big Ten Conference, and here comes an, another alliance. I don't blame people for going, oh, no, 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 I don't want another one of those. But uh, an alliance between the ACC and the Pac-12 I think is really interesting. doesn't have great geography, but I think it has great potential. Yeah, I agree with that. When you look at the map of college football and what's happening now between the leagues, you're, what you're really looking at, and I, I encourage people to find maps. There's a bunch of them on Twitter with the conferences showing in their alignments. What you're really looking at is a philosophical approach to college football. Leagues are pairing off in the way they've always approached college football. The Big Ten and Pac-12 have gone together many times. If you look at the SEC, it's a super region. All those schools have always had the same outlook on college football, which is just win it all, baby, and do whatever it takes to do it. The ACC and the Pac-12, what the, the remnants of it, have a lot of philosophical similarities in terms of high-quality universities, caring about athletics outside of football and men's basketball, and they got a bunch of just great brand names. So even if it's just for a... Um, interim period to get through a, a certain phase. I do agree with you that the Pac-12 and ACC is a really interesting pairing. Mark Shipper is our guest, fifth down college football. What have you learned in doing the research that you have done in the last few years as part of your website? Well, you know, what we're talking about, one of the most fascinating things to me is is the thesis I have that the modern conference commissioner, the Klyavkovs of the world, the Kevin Warrens, the Sankeys was actually born in sort of the fiery death of the PCC, which is the direct ancestor of the Pac-12. Prior to that happening, conference commissioners were sheriffs, policemen, internal affairs liaisons between leagues and the NCAA. They were hired to investigate their bosses' businesses, essentially. And so you can see quickly, as college football grew as a business, how that became a terrible conflict of interest. You brought a guy in to essentially find out what you're doing wrong and report you for it. So the, when the PCC blew up, it had a ton to do with the zealousness of the commissioner, which the league had told him to do, to his credit. He did what the PCC told him to do, but he did it too well. And they had an incredible scandal in the late 1950s. The whole thing burned to the ground. And Phoenix Light from the ashes, the new commissioner rose. Uh, they brought in Tom Hamilton, who was a star at Navy on Navy's 1926 national title team. And they didn't even call him a commissioner. They called him an executive. And they told him explicitly, you are not here to investigate our programs. You're here to promote our programs, promote our league, and you're here to help us generate revenue with our athletics, specifically football. So you can see the direct line from that PCC to Pac-12 to Larry Scott to George Klyavkov. That's a direct line, and it, it runs through the Pacific League. What happens to the role of a conference commissioner as this thing evolves into 
two mega conferences or a partnership with the ACC and the Pac-12, how necessary is it for you to have a conference commissioner? Yeah, interesting question. Uh, right now, it's definitely necessary. You need a point man. You need a guy who's getting everybody together on the same page, deciding what assets you have, what you know, allied strategy you want to embark on, and then he, he's got to be the guy, the general, leading it. So right now, I call it extremely important. As we go forward, it, it could turn out there's going to be some type of czar with sort of uh, lieutenant-like underlings, different kind of positions. I'm not exactly sure on that, but I know right now you want a conference commissioner who's a connected deal maker and someone who's very savvy about the sports media entertainment marketplace because, as you said many times in uh, all your great pieces on this, television is, is uh, driving this thing right now. Give media. Yeah, give me an idea because, you know, when we go back into, like, some of the research over the history of this conference, you know, it didn't used to be about TV, but, it, it, you know, suddenly it is, and it's about 7.30 kickoffs, and it's about now alliances, and forget geography, you know, you'll fly 2,000 miles to, to put on a game because we're in an entertainment world now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a major change. I think people, you know, TV. The NCAA took control of TV in 1952. Prior to that, uh, University of Pennsylvania and Notre Dame had been the only real TV players, and they deeply resented the NCAA taking the rights away and centralizing TV. From that point, it's continued to grow. I I sort of set a clock running on the era we're in now at two different places. One is 1984, the deregulation of TV in the Supreme Court. And number and number two, well, from that point on, it's basically one television consolidated control of college football's regular season, the conference networks grew up, et cetera. And then 1998 at the BCS. And leading to the BCS was the Bowl Coalition in the early 90s and the Bowl Alliance. And then the BCS. And for me, the BCS was television's crowbar into the postseason. They jacked open that door and they got in. And they bought up the postseason. So now they have the regular season. Now they have the postseason. When the college football playoff came along, I look at that as checkmate for TV. Now they, now they have everything, and the schools need every penny they can get from them. So we're in a situation now where it's um, what you just said. It, it's a full-bore entertainment property. We're talking to Mark Shipper. Fifth Down College Football is his website. I really encourage you to check that out. He does a really good job getting on the road. Uh, you were out on the road in the last year. I know we had you on the show, and you were out kind of touring the country. What, what did you find out there? Give me a couple of the highlights, because not everybody gets to be out and go see games and tailgate and kind of get the flavor of so many college towns. Yeah, you know what the, the, biggest, the biggest overall thing is this country loves college football. We see a lot of stuff in, in you know, popular media and in the culture that suggests there's a lot of uh, divisions and difficulties everywhere, and there are those things. But there are certain things we agree on, and boy, do we love them. And college football from Seattle to Eugene to uh, Los Angeles to the SEC to the Northeast, College football has a special connection to this country, which is my, my thesis in the book I'm working on about college football is that it is inseparable from American history and culture. So everywhere you go in this country, basically, and it fades in and out in certain places and um, all of that, but essentially it's just a, it's a really loved game and people are really passionate about it. It's almost like a, it comes down family lines kind of thing.
Yeah, and I think it, it's really, you know, I've been to like a spring game at LSU, and it's a cultural experience, right? Like the band comes in yeah. and people are friendly. Where were the? Where did you find the friendliest fans? Because I know fans probably were happy to see you everywhere, Mark. But where did you find the friendliest yeah. fans? The friendliest fans, um, you know, I didn't have any bad experiences. Uh, I was in Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge people are great, very welcoming, very warm. Um, I had I had fun in Tallahassee at Florida State. Mm. Um, I had a great time at UCLA outside the Rose Bowl. A lot of people, you know, they've seen the empty stadiums and the difficulties UCLA has. It's a, it's a special case for certain. UCLA has a great tailgating team out in front of the Rose Bowl and a lot of people who you welcome in and welcome you in and have a good time. Um. Yeah, I mean, and I, I oh, I should say Fayetteville, Arkansas, Fayetteville, Arkansas. Uh, I'll, I'll make that the last one. Fayetteville, Arkansas was a sensational time. Wonderful people. They love the Hogs. It's an institution in that state. And Saturday, I was I was there. Fortunately, when they upset Texas at home and stormed the field, it was the second week of my my odyssey last fall, and uh, that was one of the great experiences I had in Fayetteville, Arkansas. The the changes we're watching in college football, my fear is that we are uh, looking at a system that is, is being changed uh, not for the better. Um, help put that to rest. Can this end up good for college football, everything we're seeing, Mark? It can end up good, but I'm not going to lie about things being lost. Uh, but things have been being lost for a long time now and nothing is going to stay the same forever. I tell people all the time, if I had an opportunity and I could wind college football back, I would run the sequence between, uh, like, 1980, I wasn't even born yet, through 1997, which was the end of the, 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 end of the old system, which we call bowls and polls. You played your bowl games. They took yep. a poll January 2nd and crowned a national champion. So that's, that's gone. It's a different world, but it's still college football. We're still going to have a lot of the rivalries. We're still going to have Saturday. And who knows what happens with this playoff. A lot of people are down on an expanded playoff in postseason. It could save the Bulls. The Bulls are in big, big trouble right now. And it could end up being a good thing. So I encourage people to stick with it and keep watching your teams and your games and see how it goes. You might like it more than you think you're going to. Give me an idea. You say maybe it'll save the Bulls. Give me kind of a... Uh, a theory that 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 works out in because I like that. Yeah, well, the Bulls, the Bulls. It's interesting. The 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 series that led. There's always parallels in college football. The series that led to the BCS was the Bulls dying in about 1990. The Bulls were were going to drop dead. Their TV ratings were down. Their payouts were down. They started taking on sponsors and they lost their cachet. TV was begging for a playoff. So that's how we got going to the BCS. And the BCS revived the postseason. Not for long. We had to go to the playoff. But I look at it like this. Here's the ex example I use. If they incorporate the bowls into the postseason and we're playing uh, knockout games in the bowls rather than just some random venue or on campus the whole time, we're going to renew interest in those bowl games. If last year's Peach Bowl between Michigan State and Pitt with uh, Kenny Walker and uh, Pitt's uh, great quarterback drafted in the first round. I'm drawing a blank on his name right now. If they're playing in that game and that is an, uh, uh, a win or go home game, I think that Peach Bowl brings in millions more viewers. It was one of the lowest rated New Year's Six games on the docket last year. I think millions more people watch that game because both those guys play, their best players play, the award winners are in the game. 
and the winner matters. So I think you have to look at it like that going forward, this idea of expensive exhibitions that count for nothing, essentially. And I say that with all due respect. I love the bowl games, but they don't really count for anything other than a, 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 a win in the, in the win column or a loss. Uh, they need to be brought back to life in some way. So hopefully that's, that's a hypothesis on how that can happen. I like that. All right, Mark Shipper, you can catch him at Fifth Down College Football. I appreciate you joining us. Good stuff, man. Hi, right, John. Appreciate you. Talk soon. There he is. Check out his website. Does a good job. Coming up, we'll have our big splash. Top of the hour, Greg Biggins, 24-7 Sports National Recruiting Editor, will be joining us to talk about the impact on recruiting. If you love college football, leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Anybody know if uh, the Blazers are for sale today? Did the Blazers issue a news release, Stephen, Sean? Uh, yeah, not that I saw, but, uh, you know, we you never know. It changes day by day, I guess. I guess we should ask them every day. Are yeah. you for sale now? Yeah, exactly. How about now? How about now? How many more minutes, Dad? How many more minutes till we get, get there? <laughs> That's what we should be like. Uh, Jody Allen yesterday, if you didn't uh, catch the news, uh, issued two news releases, identical news release that went through the Seahawks, one from the Blazers. I actually like the format of the Seahawks news release better. Did you guys happen to see the actual copy, the email from the Blazers, the email from the Seahawks? Yeah, I did. The Blazer one, I agree with you, was a little weird. It's it was like, it was the... normal, but the Seahawks one, like, look at what they did on, if you go to Seahawks Twitter, just, just humor me here and go to Seahawks Twitter and look at the release from yesterday, how cool it looks. It's like, uh, it almost looks like it was faxed on Twitter. <laughs> And it's got kind of looks like it comes out of like the dot matrix world. I, I kind of like that. I was like, that's a little bit of style. I used to cover the Raiders back in the day, and uh, the Raiders used to issue their news releases that way. They would send them out via fax. But if you look at the official Twitter for the Seahawks, looking uh, at it now, you see it. Tell yeah. me, tell me that's not cool. It's it looks cool. like it's a telegram. It's nice and clean. Yeah. It feels like it's just a battle of their uh, what their communications teams, and the yeah. Seahawks may have came out on top here. I think the Seahawks it's it's just a better font. It's it's just a nice it's a nice little setup there. I, why do two news releases? Why not why not just do one? Come on. Well, John, do we... you have a favorite font? I know font is a big thing. There's a lot of people know, that are font man. snobs. Are I you just a, you know, a few font snob. As long as it doesn't look like it was done by like a fourth grader, then then I, I'm good with it. Um, uh, today's uh, Big Splash, do we have time for the benchmark, or should I just say this is the Big Splash? This is the Big Splash. How about this one? Brittany Griner uh, is expressing some gratitude, and uh, Brittany Griner's wife is uh, had a phone call with President Joe Biden and says that she's optimistic about uh, the possibility of Brittany Griner getting home. Uh, I think that's going to be an ongoing story, but uh, Brittany Griner's wife is hopeful after having a phone call with President Biden. I just think we send in our, our special ops team and get her out of there. Like, I want to see that movie after it's over, once Brittany Griner is out of Russia. Let's get that done. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Baltimore. Hey, sorry to interrupt the podcast, but 
If you want to listen to more of the Bald Face Truth Radio Show, including more of this segment that you're listening to, make sure you subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes to the Bald Face Truth Radio Show. Thanks for listening.